your Bibles out and turn to Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24 within God's Word this morning. Amen. Joshua chapter 24 within the Word of the Lord. Take your study guides out if you would. If you'd like to follow along, if you'd like to take notes this morning, uh, I'd love to have you follow along with us. Have you ever considered the different kinds of seats, chairs, that we have occupied throughout life. You know, many of the chairs, the seats that we sit in typify the various roles, the stages, the seasons of life, the joys or sadness or terrors of life. I want to show you, I want to do a little survey this morning. I want to show you various kinds of chairs, various kinds of seats this morning that people sit in. I'd like to see your response to these chairs, to these seats. And uh, if, if you have real positive feelings about a picture that you see on the screen, I want you to clap. Can you clap for me right now? Let's test that out. Okay. If you have negative, negative feelings over what you see on the screen, would you give me a loud boo? boo. Very good, very good. Okay, let's begin our survey on the different kinds of seats or chairs that we occupy throughout life. How about uh, this chair? Dinner with the family. The dinner seat. How do you feel about this kind of a chair? Okay. Okay. Sure. Okay. I've got some people that I'm not going to respond at all. That's okay. That's okay. I can see you. Okay. Real good. How about this kind of a seat? I saw some men out there. They, they, they formed their lips in the shape of a boo, but nothing came out. They choked. How about this one? What kind of memories does this bring up? Ooh. Okay, this one. <laughs> the young people. Okay. How about being called into this room to sit at this seat? The boardroom. How about your last time, your last flight with Spirit Airlines? I sense a spirit here. Spirit Airlines. <laughs> How, be, how about being ordered to sit in this seat? <laughs> I bet you just can't wait to stand in line for this appointment. <laughs> how do you feel when you saw your child in this seat? <laughs> you have memories of that? Huh? How many of you, after this service, you're going to go to this seat? <laughs> now, I, I'm interested. How, how many of you? How many of you have a relative or someone in your family that I mean, they live Christmas 24. Uh, uh, I should say, 12 months out of the year. I, I mean, constantly, they're in the Christmas spirit, and they have this kind of a seat. <laughs> 24 hours a day. How do you feel about this seat? <laughs> oh, poor little guy. And, and then my favorite chair picture, my favorite chair picture. 
<laughs> Look out, Granny's gonna be going on the waves. Sure. Life. Do you see it now with me? Life is made up of different chairs, different seats. Some we're drawn to, uh, some we detest, some we're even terrified of. Yet ultimately, ultimately, everyone, everyone chooses one of three chairs in life. I call them life chairs to sit in. No one will make this choice for you. It's a decision of your own making. This morning, Becky is going to be helping me with this object lesson uh, presentation, this message, as I begin a new series this morning. And we're starting off introducing this series with these three chairs. Uh, Lakeside uh, is blessed with Becky. Amen. She's Lakeside's own Vanna White. And she's going to be putting various placards up here for us this morning. And we've labeled these chairs, Becky and I, first generation, second generation, third generation. And I want you to ask yourself, which chair are you sitting in this morning? As we go through this, where is your family at? Your children? Your grandchildren? Which one best typifies the kind of faith that you're living presently and the kind of faith that you're passing on to your children, your grandchildren, to the world? What kind of a faith are you leaving them? Whatever it is, it will be your lasting legacy. Your lasting legacy. This month, I preach and minister on a series I've entitled Legacy. Let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus this morning, God, I pray that we'll have a vibrant legacy of faith that we will pass on in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray you'll help us, anoint us as you have in the previous services. In the name of Jesus, amen. And amen. If you'd like to follow along with me this morning, it's a fact, it's a fact. The natural tendency of the righteous, sad to say, is to spiral spiritually downward from being godly to being godless. We see this in the natural world. One of the main reasons that I'm opposed to evolution is not just because of my faith in God, but evolution is so anti-scientific. If you look up Webster's definition of science, it is that which can be observed, that which can be repeated in an experiment within a laboratory. One of the most fundamental laws of science is the second law of thermodynamics, or entropy. Everything in the known universe, everything in the natural world decays deteriorates, moves from complex to simple, from order to randomness. It has never been observed anywhere at any time of anything improving itself, becoming newer or becoming older. For instance, when you came out this morning to drive your car, when you came out to the garage or the driveway, did you look and say, lo and behold, hallelujah, it's one year newer, hallelujah, thank you Jesus. Do your kids' bedrooms, do they get cleaner and cleaner every single day, all by themselves? It's a miracle. It is wonderful. Did you get up this morning and look in the mirror and say, Praise you, Jesus. I'm one day younger again. I'm just getting younger and younger every morning. Isn't this wonderful? We laugh because it's so absurd. It's ludicrous. It has never been observed. It has ever, never been developed that things in and of themselves become better, newer, younger, 
until there's utopia, perfection. What we observe in the natural world is what we time and time again see in the spiritual. Things left to themselves. Lives untended. Untended. Our natural inclination is not to draw closer to God, not to become more mature in God, but left to ourselves. We become passive. We lose the passion. We lose the intensity. We lose the hunger for God. Miss a little church here, miss, miss a little serving here, miss a little ministry here, miss our daily devotions here, miss time with God here, miss a little prayer here, a little Bible reading there, and before we know it, we've lost the passion, we've lost the enthusiasm, we've lost our honeymoon experience with God, we've lost our first love. Tragically, there's abundant examples. Write it down. There's abundant examples of declining faith throughout the Bible. Read with me in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. What's happened? Have my projector's gone out? Thank you for letting me know. Okay. Joshua chapter 24, that's something else to pray for. Thank God we got it written down on paper and in the Bible. Amen. Praise the Lord. Pastor Ryan, see if you can help them up there. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Joshua and his generation... We're going to call them generation number one. This is where they sit, right here. This generation is stating, as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. We're going to serve God. Joshua had a personal encounter with God. Joshua heard God's voice. Joshua walked with God. Joshua wanted the best for his family. But what do we read now in verse 31? I'm causing you to be some Bible students here this morning. What do we find in verse 31? The people of Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. So, the people of Israel served God in the first generation. And they served God in the second generation. And of the elders who outlived Joshua, those who had personally experienced all that God had done for Israel. Do you notice that there? Now I want you to notice a subtle shift in terminology. We read it in Psalms 103. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The first generation, Joshua's generation, knew God. But the second generation, the elders, they just knew the acts of God. They knew about God. They did not have an intimate knowledge of God. They knew about Him. What happens to a third generation? What happens to children that grow up in a generation where the parents just know about God, but they don't really know God. They're content to just know about God. What happens to children that grow up in this kind of home? Look at Judges chapter 2, verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. When all that generation, when these generations had died, what happened? Another generation arose. The third generation. Another generation arose after them. Do you see what the, what the Bible says? 
Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. They didn't know God. First generation, then, mark it down. First generation knows God. Second generation knows about God. If you're raised in a home where they just know about God, it's just a passive, casual, compromising, half-hearted, lukewarm, namby-pamby home for God. They just know about God. I guarantee it, the third generation will always be a generation that doesn't know God at all. They don't know God at all. I mean, first generation, they're strong believers. Second generation, they settle for being weak believers. They're okay with that. They're okay with going to church once a month. They're okay with never reading their Bible, never praying. They're okay with not really pressing into God's presence. Oh yeah, they show up at Christmas time and Easter time. They're weak believers. I guarantee you the third generation will be unbelievers. Unbelievers. This pattern is seen throughout church history. This pattern is seen throughout the entire Bible. Case in point, Adam and Eve. The Bible says that in the cool of the evening, who walked with God? Adam and Eve. That's right. They knew God. They witnessed God. Yes, they fell, but they walked with God and they heard God's voice. Then they had Cain, their first child who did not follow God's instructions. He didn't give God at offering time. He didn't give his best. He didn't follow the Lord's instructions. Didn't follow the word. Didn't offer God the right sacrifice. Ends up being a murderer. He's a half-hearted believer. He's a compromiser. And then look at Cain's line. The line, the descendants of Cain, are the ones that became so evil, God had to destroy them with a flood. God's judgment came down upon them. Or, for instance, Abraham. If you read the story of Abraham, he told half a lie, and then his son Isaac told a full lie, and then Isaac had a son whose name was Jacob, which means liar, and Jacob had 12 sons who all ended up being liars except one. Yeah. Yeah. David. David, we see in the generations of David. David said, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee, O God. God said, David is a man after my own heart. Was he perfect? No. But he had a passion for God. And that got God's attention. David birthed who? Who was the next king? Solomon. Solomon. Solomon served God all of his days except the last lap, the closing chapters. And the wives that he had married led him into idolatry. Solomon compromised. That's right. And so he birthed the next king, the grandson of David, Rehoboam. Rehoboam just sold out on God, turned his back completely on God and, and worshipped idols and led the nation into idolatry. Think of it. In just the third generation from David, the nation falls into a complete, absolute rejection of God and embraces idols. You still don't believe me how this pattern continues. How about Moses? There's probably no man in the Bible no man in the Bible that had an experience with God like Moses. Moses saw the hinder parts of God. Moses said to God, show me your glory. And the glory was so evident, you couldn't look in the face of Moses. Moses had his son. Anybody know his name? Gershom. Gershom was a lukewarm, passive, passive priest in Israel where dad, Moses, had a passion for God, Gershom was passive about the things of God. And then if you've ever read the book of Judges, then you're introduced to the grandson of Moses, who was Jonathan, who became the high priest 
of idolatry. The high priest of a new religion of idols. We're talking about the grandson of Moses. How quickly the down spiral, the digression of faith can take place. Oh, there's so many instances like Eli, the high priest of Israel, who talked with God, who knew what it was to discern God's voice. His sons were Hophni and Phinehas, the second generation. These were priests in the church of that day. When the people brought offerings to God, they stole the offerings. They were so profane, they had sexual relations with the women right in the tabernacle. Talk about compromisers. And Phinehas gave birth to who? When the ark of the Lord was taken from Israel, Ichabod, Ichabod was birthed and born. What does the name Ichabod mean? The Spirit of God, the glory of God hath departed. It's gone. My point, unless a fresh experience with God is passed down to succeeding generations, spiritual defection will be a certainty. Though the first generation is committed to God, though there's absolute consecration and commitment, if the sandwich generation, the second generation, if they are a compromising generation, if they settle for half-hearted spirituality, you can count it a certainty. The third generation will not be committed, will not be compromising. They'll be downright carnal. They'll be downright carnal. I want you to notice how strategic the second generation is. Historically this morning, in many ways, I am speaking to a second generation church. A second generation Pentecostal, spirit-filled, charismatic church. This morning, I am sounding out the warning to second generation believers that we've got a choice as parents, grandparents, and as a church. You see, tragically, Becky and I have witnessed in our own larger family circle this declining, this digression of faith, this downward spiral among our own relatives resulting in substance abuse, pornography, uh, addiction, promiscuity, unwed father, spousal uh, abuse, divorce, attempted suicide, and, and her parents and my grandparents on both sides, they came out of the world. They came out of the bar scene. They came out of, of drinking and drugs and all this smack. Of, of turning your back on God and rebellion and rejection. They came out of that and they were on fire for God. But somewhere, somehow, there settles in a lukewarmness, a milquetoast, namby-pamby, half-hearted, compromising Christianity. And you can count on it. Third generation will always be carnal. Always. If you grow up in the home of a second chair family, you will inevitably become a third chair experience unless you have a fresh touch, a fresh encounter, a fresh passion for God in your life. No one is doomed. No one is blacklisted. You have a choice. But the odds are against you if you're brought up in a compromising home. It'll be very difficult for you to stand up for Jesus and say, I'm going to break this chain. I'm going to turn this around for my generation and in my lifetime. 
Write it down. This pattern of declining faith, I hope you know, is not just witnessed in families, uh, but in churches. And unless the warning signs are heeded, Ichabod, the glory has departed, will be written in our church doorways. Our own fellowship, the assemblies of God, was birthed and born in a prayer revival. People so hungry for God, people so seeking God, that the main distinctive with the assemblies of God, whether it was Topeka, Kansas, Hot Springs, Arkansas, or Azusa Street, California, people so hungry for God that in the midst of a prayer revival, the Holy Spirit came down in a brand new 20th century Pentecost. And we're still living in the blessing and the aftershocks of that first revival. Yet, yet, we're already witnessing within our movement what we call in church history the cycle of denominations. Have you ever heard of the, the cycle of denominations? We see this among all different, all denominations, all Christian denominations. You see it everywhere. First, there's revival. Then, there's great outreach, global evangelism, a great missions emphasis. Go and tell. Then the next stage is consolidation. Let's have a general headquarters. Let's uh, uh, have administration. We need to administrate. We need to manage all that God is doing. Revival. Global evangelism. Consolidation. Then there's a great emphasis on education. Colleges and seminaries are built. And then the next stage that we see in denomination after denomination over and over again, death. Death. You know I'm not opposed to education. You know that. I've attended four seminaries, graduated from two, have my doctorate. I believe in education. But I, for my, I far more firmly believe in having a fresh touch of God's fresh anointing, his fresh, his fresh power, His fresh ongoing Holy Spirit in my life. I believe in a beautiful balance between word and spirit. An evangelist, an assembly of God, an evangelist told me recently that as he came to minister in a church, the pastor ordered him, the pastor told him, don't you dare preach about sin, don't confront sin, don't preach against sin. Not in this church. We don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to turn off the guests. You know we won't have that problem in this church. One of our churches, one of our churches, I was just given a newspaper clipping by Nancy Johnson this week, one of uh, a Christian church in Pennsylvania. They had VBBS. You've heard of VBS, Vacation Bible School. This church had VBBS, Vacation Bible and Beer School. They had it all summer. They said, this is the best way we've ever found to draw crowds. Bible and beer. Bible and beer. Bible and beer. Listen, we're not, we're not, we're not about drawing crowds. We're about building congregations. I've been told over and over again, well, pastor, if, if, if you wouldn't talk about, if you wouldn't sing about the blood of Jesus, if you wouldn't have people bringing their Bibles to church, if you wouldn't have invitations for people to get right with God, if you would not entertain the exercise of spiritual gifts and the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, all of these things turn people off. They turn guests off. If you would not have those things, Things, then you'd draw a crowd. Then you'd have the numbers. Not on my watch. No, 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 no. When I read my Bible and I believe in church growth, I pray constantly for church growth. I work hard at church growth. 
But when I read my Bible, my God isn't into numbers. When he sent the flood in Noah's day, talk to me now. Talk to me. Think. Think. When judgment fell, how many were saved? Eight. 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 Eight souls were saved when judgment fell and the flood came. God wants us to build congregations not crowds. Listen, I could hand out a $20 bill at the front door of this church for everybody that comes in, and I could max the place out every single Sunday. But hear me in this. God wants to build healthy congregations to share the good news that Jesus saves. Hallelujah. Unless there's revival, unless there's a fresh experience with God, unless there's an ongoing seeking, a passionate seeking for more of God in our lives, fanning the flame of faith, unless this happens, the stage is set that Lakeside and churches like ourselves will be a sandwich generation and the third generation won't know God at all. And the funeral director will empty out every pew, every seat as we get older and as we get grayer. You see, where there was revival, now there's more of a reliance on methods and marketing. And it's going to result, mark my words, in lifeless organizations, clubs. We're no different from the Rotary or Kiwanis. Where there had been the power of God. Today, so many, so many, I could enumerate them. So many are embracing a form of godliness and denying the power thereof. You know what happened just this month at one of our Assembly of God academic institutions? They hosted an art and faith conference. And one of the presenters at the art and faith conference was showing how uh, we need to stop looking at the naked human body in photos and in pictures as pornography, but as art. And they showed one picture after another uh, of nude people. And not just nude people. And I'm not talking Michelangelo stuff. Nude people as a form of worship, worshiping what God has created. These were photos, contemporary photos, covered, then many of them, another aspect of the presentation was using tattooing as a form of worship. Now I know, I know, I know being a pastor and a leader uh, of an organ, every now and then you can have a speaker, a guest speaker that says something that you're very uncomfortable with that squeaks through the cracks and then you have to correct it when you're in leadership. My problem is this organization did not ex uh, give an apology. This organization defended it. So we see first generation has many salvations. Second generation has few salvations. Third generation, no salvations at all. More than half of the Christian evangelical churches in America last year reported not one convert. Not one! First generation is all about outreach, all about witnessing, all about missions, all about global evangelism. The second generation becomes a church that's introverted. They, they, they're consumers. How can you make the person in the pew happy? More classes, more ministries, more programs. That's the focus. Third generation is not about outreach or inreach. It's breach. It's death. First generation's consecrated. Second generation is compromising. The third generation, count on it, will be carnal. We see it in the church of Ephesus. The Bible tells us that the church of Ephesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 19, Paul laid his hands upon them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues. But when you read the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2, Jesus comes to the book of Ephesus and he says, you are active, you do many good works, you're involved in many good things, but you've left your first love. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you. You have left your first love.
Where's the church of Ephesus today? Look at your history books. Church of Ephesus today is extinct. It's gone. It's dead. It's dead. If there's not an ongoing seeking in every generation for a fresh touch, a fresh anointing, a fresh experience with, with God. You see, the first generation can have a great prayer emphasis. The assemblies of God was born in the prayer room. Then the second generation can be content with little prayer. Third generation, no prayer at all. First generation is rich in God's Word. They, they hunger for more of God's Word. Second generation, they're content with a little word and a mixture of psychology. Third generation, count on it. It'll be nothing but what? Psychology and positive speaking, positivism. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. Everybody's going to heaven. Don't you feel good about yourself? <laughs> I feel good about myself, and you should too. Yeah. That's what we're moving to. So the first generation is hot. Second generation settles for lukewarmness. Third generation, count on it, is going to be cold. So many homes, churches, and individual lives, sad to say, are in the second chair. Their children are heading for the third. And like Moses and Joshua's grandchildren, they end up not knowing God at all. Remember, we're always just one generation away from extinction. We're always just one generation away from compromising, carnal, counterfeit, casual Christianity. And if the Lord tarries... As I said, the funeral director will empty our churches out. Pastor, is there an answer? Is there any hope? Oh, yes, that's the good news of God's Word. Time and time and time again, when the people of God began to draw, grow cold towards the things of God, God would send a word. God would send a prophet. God would send His Holy Spirit as He's willing to do today. A lasting legacy of living faith. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, a good man, a good man leaves an inheritance. We're talking about more than money here. A moral stability and goodness. To what? What's our responsibility? Not just to our children. I'm learning this more and more. I'm living it. We are not just responsible for our children, but our children's children. Psalm 78, verse 4. This should be our mandate. We will not keep them from our children. We will tell the next generation about the Lord's power and His great deeds and the wonderful things He has done. How many are with me in that? We're going to tell the next generation. We're going to tell them. And more than that, we're going to show them in our own lives. Parent, Grandparent, the most valuable commodity that you can ever leave your children or grandchildren is not your money, but the faith that you have in a God who will not and cannot fail you. You're going to show your children and grandchildren how your God can be trusted and how a hunger and a passion for Him is the only way to lead the life of a Christ follower. Let me briefly share five ways, real quickly, how you can leave a legacy of faith. Number one, a legacy of faith is passed by being an example of one who has a passion for God, by putting Him first, first in all things. When younger generations see you pressing into God's presence, when we have a time of praise and worship. When your children and grandchildren see you lifting up your hands, <laughs> when they see you praying and praising, when they see you at the altar pressing in for more of God, they see you putting God first. When your children or grandchildren see you serving in ministry, teaching Sunday school, helping out with kids' church, helping out Pastor Ryan and Julie with the youth ministry, when they see you serving as an elder, a deacon, an usher, when they see you giving of your time and your talent, uh, I want you to know they see you putting God first. Sir, Dad, 
Father, you're key in this. You're key in all of this. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Are you a strong link, Dad, or a weak link? Sir, who brings the children or the grandchildren to church? That's your job, not your wife's. Who leads them in prayer? That's your job. That's your assignment. One day you're going to give a report. Who's the spiritual priest? Who's the spiritual leader in your home? That's not your wife's duty. And mom, you need to be a spiritual leader. But the number one leader is supposed to be the husband, supposed to be the father. Then granddad, you need to be a patriarch for the glory of God. Hallelujah. 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 When they see you being a spiritual priest of your home, your children and your grandchildren, they see you putting God first. When they see you, sir, dad, husband, loving your wife, their mother, or their grandmother, there's nothing that gives them greater security. They see you putting God first. When they see you, when the pastor asks for the tithes, and they see you take out that envelope, and the tithe is far more than giving. It's the first tenth of your income. When they see you giving the tithe, and it's a sacrifice, it's done by faith, it's done as worship unto God. When they see you doing that and being faithful in that, they see you putting God first. When they see you sharing Jesus with others, with the neighborhood, with the community, on the job, when they see you sharing Jesus in your words and in your actions, they see you putting God first. Jesus put an emphasis on this in Matthew 6.33. Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things shall be added unto you. All of these things added unto you. What does God want to add unto you? He wants the next generation not to be cold, but He wants the next generation to be hot for God as you are an example to them for the glory of God. Secondly, leaving a legacy of faith means intentionally positioning your children and grandchildren for blessing, a first chair experience for God's best. You remember the story of baby Moses? Pharaoh was killing all of the male babies. His parents, though, sought to save him. So they built a little boat. And listen to me now. Give me the right answer. They just haphazardly put him in the river or they intentionally positioned him on the river for a miracle. They intentionally positioned baby Moses in that little boat by the princess of Egypt so that the princess of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter, would find him, save him, and rescue him. And she surely did. It was ordered by God. They positioned baby Moses for a blessing, for a miracle, for the good things, the great things of God. Sir, ma'am, are you being intentional about this? Are you intentionally positioning your children for a miracle to be a first chair generation? Are you doing that? Well, Pastor, sometimes my, my, my kids don't want to come to church and they'd rather stay home and watch TV and I, I, I you know, I, I let them. I, I, don't, I don't believe, Pastor, we should force our children to come to church. What do you do about school? What do you do about when they're sick and they need to go to a doctor? Or they need a vaccine? Or they need to go to the dentist because their teeth are rotten out? Huh? Do you let them decide? Do you let them choose? Newsflash, newsflash, newsflash. Sir, you're not to be their buddy. You're called to be their parent. Mom, you're called to be their parent. Come on. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for the things of God. 
I remember jutting out my little chest and my little chin as a boy, and I said, Dad, I'll go to church if you give me a little red toy car. He said, if you don't go to church, I'll give you a little red rear. Get in the car, we're going to church. Mom, Dad, wake up. We're called to be parents, not buddies. I'm thankful for moms and dads that intentionally position their children every Sunday at this church for a miracle. What, what am I talking about? They make sure their kids are in Sunday school. They make sure their kids are in kids' church. They make sure every time the doors are open of this assembly, their children are attending missionettes or impact or rural rangers or youth ministry. Uh, they make sure their children are involved in all of the boys and girls and students student ministries of this church. Uh, they're not a consumer-oriented Christian. They come alongside Pastor Ryan and Pastor Randy and Pastor Ben and ask them, how can we support you? How can we help you? How can we be a co-worker? We want to position our children to receive all that they can receive from God. You need to be intentional about this. You need to be purposeful. You need to be that one who positions your children for, for, for a miracle. Boy, you make sure that they're at soccer practice. Oh man, does that become a god. Little league, football, oh my, oh, oh pastor, we got to make sure. You, you know, that they, they can't come to Wednesday night church because they need to be in bed for school the next day because that's all important. Yeah, and then you leave us pastors with damage control. When those kids grow up, oh yeah, they got straight A's. Oh yeah, they got the scholarships. Oh yeah, they went to the finest colleges. Oh yeah, they got the, the soccer scholarship. Yeah, yeah. They get married and then Pastor Hal and I have to deal damage control with their marriages that have fallen apart. And all that they earned, all the money, all the grades, all the scholarships, they lost it all because they didn't have a moral, spiritual foundation. In God's house, God's church, we need to wake up <laughs> and leave a lasting legacy for our children. Amen. Number three, every time you bless, you bless your children or your grandchildren, you leave a legacy of faith. You know, you know, I believe in the power of the spoken word. We've preached it until you could preach it. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. You're either speaking life or you're speaking death, dealing, life-destroying words in your home. Some children have grown up in homes, all they've heard all their life is stupid, jerk, you'll never amount to anything. I wish we never had you. Conversely, you imagine the power of speaking into the lives of the children in your home. I love you. And Jesus loves you too. You're the best thing that ever happened to us. Children are the heritage of the Lord. You're a gift from God. Can you imagine what happens when you not only bless them with your words, but you lay holy hands upon their head? And bless them in the name of Jesus. I believe, I believe, I believe with complete, absolute certainty on the power of blessing. I am a progenitor of righteous delegated authority. I believe that the husband, the father, the mother, the wife has delegated righteous authority from the throne of God. And something supernatural happens when a father and a mother lay their hands upon the heads of their children and invoke the blessing of God, the presence of God, the power of God upon the young lives of their children. My dad believes in it so much that late last night I got that phone call again as he prayed over you all and he prayed over the preaching of God's word that you're a recipient of right now. The power of blessing. The power of spoken blessing. 
Are you speaking blessing in your homes? The Bible Bible says that the patriarch's children fought for the blessing. They fought to receive the blessing from their dads. The patriarchs would lay their hands upon the children and the grandchildren and speak prophetic blessing upon them. And it took place. How about the parents who came to Jesus bringing their children, bringing their their, their babies? What did they want? They wanted what? The blessing from Jesus. And those parents even fought with the disciples to get the blessing. Weekly, daily, speak blessing upon your children. Lay your hands upon them. Lay your hands upon them. You've heard me say so many times, I did it in my home, and I would even come, when I'd come home late at night, and the kids were already in bed, I'd come into their bedrooms, I'd sneak in there and lay my hand upon their head and just begin to pray, and pray in the Spirit. There's power in that. There's protection in that. God's presence is drawn to that. My dear wife, Becky, was over at Julian Ryan's house and she crept into the nursery and there she found our grandson, six years old, little Jack. He was standing at the cribs where our twin granddaughters are sleeping and he had his hands outstretched and he was praying over them. Praying over his little sister. Would you bless? Will you bless? There's power in your blessing. Never ever forget that. Number four, a powerful way you can leave a legacy of faith for your children or grandchildren is to consistently pray for them. Pray for them. You're not only going to bless them, you're going to intercede for them. You're going to stand in the gap for them. Standing in the gap means you're going to stand between the judgment of God and you're going to stand between them and that judgment. You're going to stand in the gap. Some of you this morning that I've been preaching to you and ministering to you, old Slewfoot would like to sit on your left shoulder and whisper in your ear, you've been a lousy parent. You've been a neglectful parent. You've been a bad dad. I'm here this morning to reject that in the name of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus is against you, Satan. Don't go there. My Bible and your Bible says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Yes, you cannot relive the past, but today is a new day. I said today is a new day. Today is a new beginning. Today is a new hour. Amen. Right now, today, you're going to hunker down and you're going to begin to pray for them as never before. Some of you have children and grandchildren that are away from God. God knows where they're at and they're waiting for you. God is waiting for you. All of heaven is waiting for you to stand in the gap and to intercede uh, and declare, enemy, the blood of Jesus is against you. You cannot have them. They were formed and fashioned for the blessing and the presence of the Lord. And Jesus has all authority in this matter. I claim them through the cross. I claim them in the blood of Jesus. They are not yours. They are not yours. You're going to pray that the Spirit of God will grip them wherever they are at and soften their heart and woo them to the cross of Jesus. You're going to pray that God will send a holy posse a holy posse of soul winners. They might be at the university. They might be at work. But that God knows where his Christians are at. And God is going to send a holy posse of witnesses and soul winners to surround them. And every which way they turn, they're going to find, they're going to find Jesus. They're going to run into Jesus. They're going to hear the good news. We don't have any perfect parents that are here this morning. In fact, there aren't any perfect parents. 
And I'm one of them. I got a lot of regrets. It's funny. You get to this stage in life and you say, oh, I wish I'd have done more of this or I wish I did that. None of us are perfect parents, but we can be praying parents. We can be praying parents, and we can pray in the name of Jesus. It's the most powerful act that you'll ever do for your children. Prayers turn parents that are ordinary into extraordinary prophets who shape the destinies of their children and their grandchildren and the generation that follows. Your prayers for your children can be a lasting legacy. Your prayers, I want you to know, are deathless. Prayers continue even after we die and go on to be with the Lord. Lastly, Paul reveals that God's legacy, desire for you and I, and the generations which follow, is fresh fire. Fresh fire. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is speaking to his spiritual son. Who was the spiritual son of Paul? Timothy. And Paul sees some warning signs with Timothy that are causing him concern. So Paul writes this to Timothy. I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois. She's first generation. She had a first generation experience. Your mother, Eunice, she also had a first generation experience. And I'm persuaded that is in you also. Timothy was enjoying a first generation experience. But Paul saw some warning signs. Therefore, I remind you to stir up. Would you circle those two words? Stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. Don't be passive about this, Timothy. I see some things creeping up in your life. I see some warning signs in your life. I see some danger signals. So stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but love, power, and a sound mind. Again, note that Lois, Eunice, and Timothy all had a first chair experience. They all had a personal experience with God. What is the key? The key is don't be passive about this. Don't sit on your hands with this. Every single day, stir up uh, the gift that God has placed within you. Stir up the Holy Spirit that came upon you the moment you were born again and saved. Stir up the fresh fire within your life. Say, God, I'm hungry for more of your spirit. I'm hungry for more of you. Read your Bible more. Pray more. Come to church more. Get involved in ministry more. Let there be a thirst and a hunger in your life for more of God. Determined to be like King David, who said, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. I'm not going to be content where I'm at today. I'm not going to live on my parents' faith. I know that I'm not going to go to heaven just because my parents were Christians. I'm going to go to heaven because I have a fresh encounter with you, Jesus. Lord, give me that which you require. Give me a hunger for more of you. Lord, I want to follow you more. I want to witness more. I want to know you more. I want to know you in the power of your resurrection. Each generation needs to pray for fresh fire. Fresh fire. Fresh fire. That's the answer. For our families, the generations, it's the answer for our church. In 1989, an 8.9 killer quake 8.9 in the Richter scale leveled the nation of Armenia. History tells us that over 30,000 people were instantly killed in the earthquake that hit Armenia in 1989. The moment the earthquake hit, there was a dad, a father by the name of Armand, who said to his wife, I'm running to the school and I'm praying that our son is alive. Their son, Raul. He raced to the school. The building was flat as a pancake. 
parents had already circled the school. They were shrieking. They were screaming. They were crying out, our children are dead. But not Armand. He immediately, like a human bulldozer, he dove in and began removing rocks, began levering boulders. He began digging with his bare hands. The police came eight hours later, and Raoul said, help me, help me, please. Police said, they're all dead. Give it up. And they went on their way. Rescue workers came. Twelve hours later, they said the same thing. Give it up. It's useless. They're all dead. But he just kept digging all the more. 18 hours, 20 hours, 26 hours, 36 hours. His hands are bleeding all over as he's digging like a human bulldozer for his son. And then he heard a sound. Raul! Raul, is that you? Yes, Dad. I knew you'd come and get me. I have 12 other children here with me, boys and girls. I want them to go out first. I knew you'd come, Dad, because you always promised me that if anything ever happened, you'd be there to rescue me. And the story is told how the dad who just wouldn't give up he wouldn't give up, rescued his only son and a dozen other children. Will you be that kind of a parent? Will you be that kind of a grandparent? Will you take your stand and say, I'm not going to give up. In the name of Jesus, I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep believing. Today is the day of salvation, and God is going to bring a miracle. Would you stand with me this morning? Amen. Amen. Let's move up and let's have a first chair experience this morning. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask, oh God, that a burden, a burden of intercessory prayer would come upon this congregation, would come upon this people, that, Lord, that we would pray, oh God, Lord, for our children, we would pray for our grandchildren. We would pray for our church that we would be a first chair experienced church, oh God, in the name of Jesus. Lord, let this burden of intercessory prayer come upon us even now. Let it grip our heart that, Lord, we would seek you as never, ever before. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed here this morning. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed here this morning. You're not where you should be in Christ Jesus. You're not in right relationship with God, but you want to be. You want to be in right relationship with God. You want to have a home in heaven. If that's you this morning, I'm prepared to pray a prayer. I'm prepared to include you in this prayer that I'll pray. A prayer that will make you right with God and grant you eternal life in Christ Jesus. How many want to be included in that prayer this morning? You're away from God. You don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You're not in right relationship with Him. And you want to be included in this prayer. God bless you. I see that hand up on the balcony. Amen. How many more? Lift it up high that I can see it. Lift it up high. Don't be embarrassed. Amen. God bless you, sir, dad. I see that hand. God bless you. How many more? How many more? I'm not, you're not where you should be. And today's a day to come home to Jesus. Pray with me right now. Keep those hands lifted up. Repeat this prayer after me. Own this prayer. Mix it with your faith. Everyone pray it with me. Dear Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner. I have sinned. I have drawn cold with you. But Lord Jesus, I confess you're my Savior and you're my Lord and I want to follow your word I believe you paid the price for my sins and I believe you rose from the dead with resurrection life new life I want that life Jesus Lord I need your grace your amazing mercy I receive it right now 
I return to you. I come back to you. Thank you, Jesus, for renewing my dedication. Thank you, Jesus, for changing me, for cleansing me. I thank you, Jesus, that I'm saved. His heads remain bowed. How many of you have children, grandchildren that need to be born again, that need to be brought into the kingdom? How many of you have children, grandchildren that God has placed upon your heart? They're a burden upon your heart. Would you lift up your hands this morning? Yes, yes, yes. All across this congregation. Amen. If you believe in the power of prayer, if you believe this morning, if you believe this morning in the power of God's Holy Spirit, the power of prayer, if you believe that God does things at His holy altar that He doesn't do anywhere else, I'm going to invite you right now without any, any orchestration to come down to this front and fill this altar as we pray for our children, as we pray for our grandchildren. Some are lost, some are lukewarm, some are walking with God, but we're going to come and pray down for our children right now. I want to lead you in prayer, intercessory prayer for our children this morning. Come right now, don't hesitate.